Well, thank you, Nikisha, and good morning to y'all. Uh, my name is Tim. We're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, this morning, I have the pleasure of, of being able to serve as one of the, the pastors um, here at Christ Community. And I was thinking about this this week, and I've been um, a pastor now for about 12 years um, of my life. And, and I, I love that. I, I like my job a lot. I want to keep, um, keep doing it. And, and one of the reasons I get to spend my life um, talking to people about, about Jesus, that's one of the prime um, things I'm called to do and, and be. But one of the frustrating things to me, at least, is, is just the number of misconceptions there are about Jesus, and two in particular that are kind of at the heart of this text this morning. Misconceptions I have about Jesus, often that sneak into my own thinking, but, but misconceptions I think broadly held about Jesus within um, this culture. The, the first one being is, is that G, people tend to view Jesus as, as simple. Right? Jesus, he's a good person, maybe a good example, um, but his world was not nearly as complex as ours. He doesn't have the education that you and I have and, and so therefore what Jesus has to offer us is, is goodness, but not necessarily intelligence. But I, I just want to say, I, Jesus is not simple. Jesus is the most brilliant human being who ever lived. And I, I think you have to acknowledge that whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. Because of the number of people who have looked at his life, looked at his teachings and decided, that guy gets me and has something for me that no one else has. Jesus didn't just rope a few people from his hometown into following him. No, billions of people from different races, different continents, from different times. They all have, have become convinced they should give up everything in their life and follow Jesus. Which is even more incredible when you consider the fact that Jesus is very different than the Muhammad or Islam um, or, or the Buddha and Buddhism. That Jesus, he doesn't come and say, hey, hey listen, I've discovered the best way to live. Here are the best teachings, the best Rules that you should follow to live your life by. No, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I've, I've discovered the good life. Here's what it is. No, what Jesus says is, I'm the good life. I, follow me. Come after me. I'm the best way to live. Turn over your life to me. Follow me. And billions of people have said yes to that. That They think Jesus is their only hope for what is wrong with them. And maybe Jesus is wrong or a liar and he's brilliantly evil, but you can't deny he's brilliant. Too many people have given up too much in light of his life and teaching for us to sit back and think, he doesn't have the education we have, he's, he's, he's not quite as smart as we are. No, Jesus is the most brilliant human being who ever lived. Too many people, including me, who've never met him, right, never seen him, have found his life and teaching so compelling They've literally said, anything he asked me to do, I'll go and do. Jesus is not simple. The other misconception I find is pretty common with Jesus. The people think Jesus makes life easier. Right, Jesus, he's all about grace. You read the Old Testament, and that sounds a really depressing life, right? Lots of rules, lots of things he expects you to do. But you get the New Testament, and Jesus, he's, he's just grace. And he makes it easier on you. But hopefully you, let, you heard the last verse that Nikisha read for us. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You could sum all of Jesus' teachings up to you. His one command to you is this. You have to be perfect like God. That's not, that's not easier than the Old Testament. Jesus makes it harder. He makes life more painful. But he will make you perfect. And so this morning, we're, we're in the heart of his teaching on this of the kind of person Jesus expects you to become, of the kind of community he expects 
his church to become. The last week we talked about what it means to be salt and light, that we as the church community are to be an alternative community within our city. And this is the sermon that lays out the bulk of what Jesus means by that. And so I actually, I want to read the bulk of Jesus' sermon for us this morning in Matthew 5. And I realize there's, there's always a chance when you're, whenever you're doing that, that, that you'll check out, you'll get bored because you've heard this before. But I want to read it anyway, because what these verses have in front of us, what Matthew 5 is about, is, is the most compelling teaching, I think, ever by a human being. It's ever been given. More people have given their lives over Christ because of these words than any other words that have ever been spoken. And so as best you can on a Sunday morning with the sun shining outside, give fresh ear to these words. The summary of Jesus' teaching and his expectations for us. Whether you believe in him or not. Matthew 21, 5, 21 through 48. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, love you what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus makes it harder. Jesus is going to make life more painful. And thirdly, Jesus will make you perfect. 
So let's jump into this story, but before we do, let's pray and ask for God's, God's help. Our perfect God, who has never treated any human being with contempt, who has never looked on a woman with lust, who has never obscured the truth or manipulated others, who has never retaliated for revenge, but who only loves his enemies. Oh, perfect God, would you help us to be like that? Us to be a people like our God, we pray. Amen. So Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, is making it clear that his expectation for your life, if you're going to follow him, is not that you become a slightly better person. Not that you round off the rough edges of your character, but that you become perfect like God the Father is perfect. Which, what does that even mean? Well, that's the end of the sermon, right? Or the end of this chunk of the sermon. And so before Jesus gets to that statement, he lays out a number of of case studies, six case studies, actually. And the first thing we see is Jesus, he's not talking about being perfect in some heavenly realm. Like, he's not talking about, here's what's going to be like when you're floating on clouds and playing harps and have golden uh, fleece. You know, he's not talking about that. He's actually talking about everyday life. He's talking about anger. Obsessive lust and adultery, divorce. He's talking about the contempt you and I have for other people. He's talking about revenge, verbal manipulation, and coercive behavior. He's talking about everyday life. And he's looking into all of our everyday lives and saying, I want you to be perfect. Like God is perfect. And to understand what Jesus is doing here, we have to take time and unpack Briefly, each of these case studies. And I'm going to condense the six into four, because there are really four, I think, things Jesus is driving at. And so he lays out four, really six case studies, but the four we'll look at is, is anger, lust, dishonesty, and love. And unsurprisingly, Jesus starts with anger. Right, the rule is simple, right? You've heard that it was said, do not murder. And listen, you don't have to have the Old Testament as your your law code to, to think murder is, is wrong, right? In our own culture, we would say, listen, you should never harm someone else um, at all, physically, right? Now, now, what you think of them, that may, maybe matters less, but you should never do physical harm to another person. But Jesus says, that's not the good life, right? The good life isn't the bar of don't murder anyone else. The good life is a much higher bar than that. That, that our problem is not that we might have so much rage built up in our own heart that one day we might lose it and murder Someone, although that is a concern. And the problem, it's not even anger itself, because there are things in this world to rightfully be angry about. The problem isn't with anger itself. The problem is, what do you and I do with anger? Do we receive it? Indulge it? Meditate on it so that that you and I walk around constantly with an extra supply of anger, ready to hand out to any who might cross our paths. Especially those who cross our paths every day. Just before I was, I was writing the sermon, I was at Panera at a meeting, and in the middle of the meeting, there were these two people driving, and they were backing up, and they were about to hit each other. Um, and so one of the people, they lay on the horn a bunch. The other person keeps backing up and doesn't stop, keeps backing up. The other person keeps laying on the horn. And you can see, she rolled her window down, and she looked, and the other person never saw her and just drove off, drove away. And after the person drove away, she's done honking, Window rolled down. I'm the only one who I think saw this. She raises up her hand and, and lifts the one finger salute. I was probably the only one that, 
that saw it. And, and reflecting on that moment, it, it struck me as especially pathetic. Right? Not, not judging her in a sense that I've never done anything like that or harbored anger while I was driving. But the fact that sitting there thinking and reflecting on that, like, like she had so much anger built up in, in her that, that even though there was no one to give it to, she still gave it anyway. We're like that. We have so much contempt and anger built up in our hearts that maybe no one's even there to receive it, but we still, we still have to give it. That what Jesus is saying here is, is your, your standard is not don't murder. Your standard is no contempt for any human being ever. Now, great, you've never murdered. That's awesome. But who did you scream at this week? Right? Who, who did you hold in contempt? Who did you think yourself better than? And that's why Jesus says... That's great, don't murder, right? Jesus isn't saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you murder. No, he's saying don't murder, but also, if you look at people with contempt, if you say in your heart, you fool, you're in danger of the, the, the hell of fire. That maybe we're keeping the do not murder rule, but Jesus makes it harder. He expects us to be the sort of being, human beings who never hold other human beings in contempt, no matter what their politics are, no matter how they drive around us, Right, whether it's our kids and they frustrated us to our wits end, even if it's your coworker, even if you have the right to be angry at them and they've really done incredible wrong to you, Jesus is saying Christians are to be the sort of people who never have contempt in their hearts for other human beings. So how do we stop? How do we become the sort of people that Jesus is talking about here? Well, he starts with anger, and he moves from anger to lust. And the rule is simple, right? Do not commit adultery, which is don't, don't have sex with someone that you're not married to. And I think this is especially the place where many of us are going to begin to think Jesus is naive. And whether you're a Christian or not, I think with our cultural sexual ethic, we just think Jesus is, I mean, he's really over the top here. I mean, he's kind of unrealistic, right? I mean, what he says is, if you even look on someone with a desire to have sex with them, that's a sin. That's adultery, Right? And, and, and that doesn't mean that Jesus, he's not saying you can't look at other people and find them attractive. There's a difference between that and looking at another human being, looking at another person for the explicit desire of, of wanting them sexually. And the reality is, our, listen, our culture has a completely different view here. We would say a completely different sec, uh, sexual ethic on, on, with, with really two thoughts, two, two kind of underlying themes that, that our culture thinks about when it comes to sex. One is that, that what two consenting adults should do um, or what they do uh, with one another shouldn't matter to God or to anyone else. And two, if you feel a strong romantic attraction to a person or, or to something, it's, it's, actually harmful. it's actually harmful to deny that attraction. Right? To deny what your heart longs for. It actually it, it will destroy you. It will make things worse for you. But Jesus pushes back against that in two ways. One, he says, listen, your sexual desires are the worst guide for you to have flourishing sexually. Right? He's saying, listen, if you look at, at someone else with lustful intent, you're already committing adultery in your heart. You're sowing the seeds of adultery in your heart. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin your family. Don't do that. You can't do that. And second, Jesus' view says consent should never be the standard for sex. Right? That, that's a pretty low standard. Right? That the only way you should sleep with someone else is if they say yes to whether or not they want to sleep with you. Jesus is saying no. The only way you should ever sleep with someone else, it's not if they're willing to sleep with, with you, but only if you are willing to first give of yourself completely, financially, emotionally, physically, in every way in marriage before you ever get to that point of sex. Right? You have to make far more promises before you can ever look at a person and desire them sexually. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the standard. 
And so the reality is these are two very different approaches. And, and so it's either Jesus or it's us who is naive when it comes to sexuality. After all, we're the, the culture that creates media with the explicit purpose of exploiting others to lust after them. And all you have to do is walk by the magazine aisle, which sits right next to our kids' candy aisles in our grocery stores. The movies we make, or pornography, which is, that's the whole reason pornography exists. But Jesus warned us about this. He said, if you do that, if you, if you lust after other people in your hearts, you're committing adultery. You're sowing a destructive seed in your heart. But we think he's wrong, or at least our culture does. And many of us, maybe practically, we think he's wrong about this. And the question I would pose to us is, is which, which view, ours or his, treats sex as a more beautiful, honoring gift? The one that says, who cares what, what two consenting adults do? It's their business. If you have desires, you have to indulge them, so it doesn't matter who you lust after. Does that honor sex, or does, does Jesus' view, which says the only reason you should ever look at another human being and desire them sexually, open that channel up into your heart, is if first you've made all kinds of promises about your finances, about your, your time, about your life in marriage before you even get to the question of sex. And so listen, I, I think even most non-Christians would acknowledge this. We're a culture that is, is trapped in lust, consumed by it. So how do we become a people free of that? To be the sort of people Jesus is talking about here the sort of people who would never look at another human being and desire them sexually unless we first were willing to marry them. So he starts with anger. He moves to lust. Third is, is divorce. And, and we're going we're gonna to punt that for a later week just because Jesus deals with divorce more in depth. And, and there's just so much to unpack there that, that we didn't want to deal with it here. And so, so I'm punting. I'm, I'm being lame um, for this morning. Um, but it, it's an important issue, and we're going to deal with it later um, Later on, but Jesus moves from, from anger to lust to divorce, which I think is connected with, with lust in some way. And then thirdly, to, to oaths, to, to dishonesty. And, and this one always really confused me, um, that people in Jesus' day, they had a, a strange practice. Right? You might make a promise to someone by saying, listen, I promise I'll do this to you by the city of Jerusalem. Right? And Jerusalem was an important city, a really important city. But it wasn't quite as important as some other things. So if I, if I told you I'm swearing by Jerusalem... What I was saying was like, I'm like 80% sure I'm going to do this. But there's a chance I may not because Jerusalem, well, it's not as important. And, but if, if I said, hey, I promise to do this, do this by the temple, well, that's where God lives. So if I'm saying that, then it's like 98%. I'm probably going to do what I told you to do because I'm swearing by the temple. And so there were all these weird practices they had to where they could kind of back out of the truth if, if, they, if they needed to. And for a long time, I read this and thought, I don't, I don't do this. This isn't related to me, right? I mean, you'll never hear me say, hey, I, I swear by the gym at Maranatha um, that I'm going to do this. Like, I'm never going to say that. And so I always thought this was completely irrelevant to me, but it's not. You and I do this all the time, what Jesus is talking about here. For, for example, I have, a, I have a trump card with, with my wife, Misty. If I'm distant, if I'm worn out, if I don't want to engage, I don't want to have a conversation, if, if I'm just not doing like, a good husband job in an evening... Then all I, all I need to say is something like, you know, I, just, I had a really hard day pastorally. We just had some just really difficult issues come up today, and, and I just need some rest. Which may be true, but that's not why I'm saying it, right? I'm saying it because it's like, it's like getting out of bazooka, right, and, and firing it right at Misty. Like, you can't, you can't answer that. Like, hey, I, 
I don't know what you did today, but I, I serve God in like really powerful ways, and I need a nap, right? It's, there's no concern for the truth in that statement, right? And listen, you, think back to your last argument with your spouse. I, spouse, I guarantee you, you're, you pulled out a card that was supposed to be the trump card that laid down and, and ended discussion. And that's what Jesus is saying here, is you use the truth in a way to get your way. Not as a concern for the truth, right? It's not me going to Misty saying... Listen, I'm just, I'm just weak and, and worthless right now, and I'm sorry. Can I, can I have a break? Right? It's, 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 I'm using the truth to get my way. I'm, I'm manipulating my way with, with words. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you follow me, you can't do that. The, the standard for you is not just don't lie. The standard for you is, is you can never use words in a way to get your, yourself over others, to verbally, verbally manipulate, to coerce. To get your way, you cannot use words, the truth, to do it. And we do it all the time. So how do we stop? How do we become a people who who can enter into conversation without a desire to get our way, but a desire for for the truth? Well, in the last two sections, Jesus goes to, to talking about how you respond to your enemy, the one who does you harm. All right, and the rule in the Old Testament was an eye for an eye, a tooth, for a tooth, but Jesus says, no, we go a step further than that, right? And, and, and listen, I think our culture would largely agree with an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In fact, this week, even in, in the political discussion, someone quoted the, the, this verse to um, a politician running for president. He responded by saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Bible too, isn't it? Right? I mean, that, that is our cultural desire, right? Revenge. You, did, you, you hurt me, I hurt you. You give something to me, I pay you back with the same Kind, although generally we add just a little bit, right? But Jesus is saying no. No retaliation. Right? The things that we fill our, our time with our family reunions at, our passive-aggressive posts on Facebook, the fact that when our kids yell at us, we yell back. When our coworkers let us down, we feel like we can let them down. The fact that when others hurt us, we hurt back. Jesus is saying none of that. No retaliation. No eye for an eye. No tooth for a tooth. But that's not all he says. He actually goes beyond that. Then he says, and then I want, you, I want you to think of the person that hurt you, and you are to love them. You're to actively seek their good, and you're to pray for them. So it's not, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you can't retaliate. But then you actually have to love them and pray for them. How in the world can you and I ever become people like that? Well, Christians, we've read this text really in, in generally one of two ways. One way is that, that Jesus' whole point here is that he wants to show you your sin, how, how you can never do this. You can't become perfect and drive you into to sadness and depression. And then you have to follow him and, and you become a Christian. But you'll still never do it. Right? The whole point of Sermon on the Mount is, is for Jesus to lay out a life you'll never become. Whereas the second group of people would say, this is the new law. This is the new way you're supposed to live. Right? You're supposed to not retaliate. You're supposed to love your enemies. Right? This, Jesus is giving you new commands by which you have to follow if you're going to follow him. And I think they're both, they're both wrong and they're both right. That yes, a big point of what Jesus is saying is here, here is, is, listen, you can't do this. Right? He is not saying to you, hey, be perfect because your Heavenly Father is perfect and I know you can do this. Just try a little harder. That's not what he's saying. But he's also, in this section, painting out a picture of a life for you. The life you were meant to have. The life, if you take up your cross and follow him, you will have. It's both. You can't do this, and you will. So how? How does that work? What does that look like? 
Well, Jesus, listen, we can, we can make no doubt after having gone through that section, Jesus, he raises the bar. He does not make it easier. He makes it harder. But second, Jesus makes life more painful. What I mean by that is, is Jesus wants all of us to see something very clearly here. That I think it's easy for me to assume that my anger problem is because of, of something else other than me. Like, right, I'm angry because of the people I'm around. Right? My, my three kids, all they do most of the time is scream at me. It's like, well, it's their fault that I'm an angry person because they scream at me all day. And, and, if, and not just anger, but lust. Listen, I live in a, a hypersexualized culture. Of course, I'm, how am I going to not lust? Look at the culture in which... I live, or, or I, listen, I obscure the truth because I'm tired, I need rest, I need a break, or I fail to love my enemies because I, I didn't have coffee this morning, and that's really my, my best strategy to love my enemies is caffeine, right? There's this assumption I think most of us, or many of us have, that, that well, the problem is, is out there, and really my heart's in the right place, right? That's why when we apologize, we're, we apologize by saying things like, you know, I'm better than that, I'm not really like that, that wasn't like me. Right? If, well, if, if all of these things hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done that. Which is essentially saying, listen, my heart is gold, and it's the world that's, that's dark, and that's the problem. If I could just get my heart out, it'd be fine. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, no. That's not the problem. You are the problem. The C.S. Lewis would say it to, to us like this. If you were to turn your lights on in your basement, you'd make a racket... And then walk down into your basement and you don't see any rats. It doesn't mean there's not any rats. It just means they had time to hide. Right? And, and listen, a lot of times when, when I'm angry or when I'm, I'm weak, right, I have time to put on a face, to, to give a certain reaction, right? So listen, when I'm, when I'm well rested, well caffeinated, well fed, and have played golf in the last three to four weeks, I'm a wonderful human being to be around. You would love that, Tim. Right? And I want to walk around thinking that's the real me. Right? That's who I really am, is the well-rested, well-caffeinated. Like, that is who I am. But, but Jesus, Jesus is saying no. Don't look at yourself and the rules that you keep. Right? Well, I've never murdered anybody. I've, I've, I've not committed adultery. Jesus is saying don't look at that. It's like rats in a basement. The light, they had time to hide. But let's say instead you flip on the light in your basement. You run down quickly. You don't give the rats the time to hide, and you see them everywhere. The witch is a better truer picture of your heart, your life. Lewis's point is simple, that what I do when I'm not well-rested, when others are screaming at me, when I, I can't craft the reaction I want to craft, that's the real me. And so Lewis asks, asks us this, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. Jesus is saying, that part of you that's, that's angry, that lusts, that obscures the truth, that wants to retaliate, that's the real you. And a new set of rules isn't going to help you because you, the rats in the basement, they have to be killed. You can't manage this problem. That part has to die in you, which is why the whole point of, of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is coming saying, listen, I'm not offering you a bunch of new rules to follow. I'm offering you a new heart. You need to be perfect like God, and you, you will not become perfect like God with new rules, but with a new heart, which is why we have to be careful when we read this passage to not say these are the new rules Jesus is telling us to follow. That's not the point. He's painting a life, yes, a picture of what your life should and could be one day, but these aren't just the new, harder rules for us to follow. So it raises the question, okay, well, how do we follow Jesus, and how do we get a new heart? How do we become 
people who live into what Jesus is asking us to do here. And for those of you in a community group, that, that's really what we're trying to spend six weeks through our yo curriculum trying to unpack is answer that question, what it means to, to follow Jesus and let him give you a new heart. But two, I'll give you the one-minute version this morning. Two thoughts about how you and I receive a new, new heart from Jesus. The first, you, you have to enter the practices of Jesus. Right? You'll never love your enemies by trying really hard. You won't. But you might if you start praying for them daily. That you'll never stop lusting by trying really hard. But you might by, by picking a day of the week or a meal of the week to fast. To, to see that you don't have to give in to all of your bodily desires. There's a higher joy with which to live. And you'll never stop having contempt for other human beings by trying harder, but only when you read your Bible and you see all the places where God should have had contempt for human beings and should have destroyed people, how he should have had contempt for me and for you, but he doesn't. His steadfast love is new every morning, and only when you enter his story and his life again and again through the pages of Scripture will you be the kind of person who on the spot responds, not with retaliation, but with forgiveness and grace and prayer. The, the way you and I get a new heart is through these spiritual disciplines, the practices Jesus did himself in his own life, fasting, prayer, reading the Bible. There's a long list of those. We're walking through that in a curriculum. But, but you won't grow. You won't get a new heart by trying harder. But these things alone cannot give you a new heart. They cannot. You have to receive the gospel of Jesus, but I would put it like this. You have to receive the pain of Jesus. Right, Jesus, listen, he's the only one who can make you perfect. And what he's saying is that your diagnosis is your heart, as it is, is going to destroy you. You need a new heart. Right, and the worst of all human diagnoses, they all require lots of pain to heal. Right? If, you, if you have cancer, you're not going to be healed of it without significant pain. Right, with heart disease. Right? Any, any human ailment, the treatment always generally means more pain before there's healing. And if you think Jesus can make you perfect without a painful process, you're radically misunderstanding the nature of your problem. Right? Jesus gives hints of this here, and we'll unpack this more later. But Jesus says explicitly here, your anger, your lust, your contempt for others, your heart will in the end destroy you. Right? You heard the mentions of hell. That Jesus is diagnosing our hearts and saying, listen, if, if you don't take care of this, if you don't take care of your contempt for other human beings, if you don't take care of your lust, if you don't take care of your dishonesty, you are in danger of the hell of fire. That what he's saying is you have the seeds for murder, adultery, dishonesty, all of that mess planted into your heart. And unless you come in, let me come in and dig out that seed, that root, it's going to grow into something terrible. I think for many of us in the moment that doesn't make sense, but, but for me now being 32... Having lived a little bit of life, I understand how things 10 years ago, if I hadn't killed them then, what they would look like now. And if the Bible's right and you and I go into eternity, what, if you're not going to deal with your anger now, what's it going to look like 30 years from now? What's it going to look like 100 years from now? If you don't deal with your hatred for those who, who have harmed you, what's that going to look like 100 years from now? If you don't deal with your lust now, what's it going to look like into eternity, 30, 40, 50 years from now? Jesus is telling you here, it looks like hell. That's what it looks like. It's a disaster. Which is why he's coming in aggressive terms saying, you have to deal with this. Right? And we, have, we want to be careful. Jesus isn't literally saying, hey, cut, out your, cut off your hand or, your, you know, poke out your eye. That's not literal, right? Because that's not going to help the problem anyway. But he's saying, you have, to, you have to approach this with that sort of aggressiveness. Right? Like you would if you, were, you found you had cancer or you found you were dying. Right? You would 
enter in. Like surgery, the best example. There is no surgery that's not painful. And if we're going to have a new heart, if we're going to become people who, isn't, who are no longer like what Jesus describes here and instead perfect like God, it's going to be painful. That Jesus wants to get in and dig up all the roots of your life and plant new fruit. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Hear hear how he he said this. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He will make the feeblest and filthiest, filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless love and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for. Nothing less he meant what he said. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And this is where... The Christian gospel is unique. It's unlike any other religion because becoming a Christian, it means you, you acknowledge two things at the outside. The first, you're not, you're not what you should be. Right? You know you are, your anger far too dominates your heart. You know your lust problems. You know your problems. You know you're not what you should be. And secondly, to become a Christian then is to say, only Christ can make me what I should be. Only he can make me perfect. And that is, that is far more of an intense reality than if, if you're going in for surgery or you're going in to treat cancer. And it's going to be, as Lewis says, a painful process. That receiving his gospel is good news, but it's painful news. Because it means everything has to go. Everything has to be made new. Nothing stays. So Jesus, he makes it harder. He makes it more painful, but thirdly, he will make you perfect. So here is where we might be tempted to, to make a, fa- a fatal mistake. And I mentioned this, this earlier, that Matthew 5, it can be easy to read that and say, all right, I didn't keep those rules. Jesus gives me new rules. Now I have to keep these rules. But that misses where Jesus starts this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 17, that you have to remember verse 17 as you read all the way to verse 48, where Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Jesus point, listen, it's simple. He's saying, I know you don't keep the rules. I know even if, if I gave you new rules and you tried to keep those, you wouldn't keep them. That's not the point. The point is, I have come and obeyed the law, the prophets, everything in Scripture on your behalf. And that frees up us for two things. One, it means you can keep approaching Jesus regardless of how well you keep the new rules. or Regardless of how well you live into the Sermon on the Mount, you will not exhaust God's grace towards you. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, not you, so keep coming. But secondly, if, if Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in, in himself and he lived a perfect life, then he can look at us and say, hey, I can make you perfect. I know that way. I've been that way. Come with me. I mean, it, this, is a, this is utterly different than any other faith, religion, way of looking at life. Right? Because religion tells you, if you keep the rules, you can come. Right? And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, if you keep the rules well enough, then you and I can talk. If you, if you live up to the, what the kingdom calls you to be, then you and I can talk. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I kept the law and the prophets for you. Come. Or if, if you're not a Christian, we still tend to live into to rules. Right? We decide, 
What is it that will give me the best, the happiest life, right? And you create rules around that and you try and live after those, keep those as best you can. But at some point, it's going to fall apart, right? At some point, you're going to get diagnosis, right? If you, if, you, if you build your life around your kids, at some point, they're going to let you down. If you build your, build your life around your career, at some point, you're not going to do the work you wanted to do. You can't, you can't have your own rules and keep them because that will not lead you to a rich, full, good life. Both religion and irreligion, in the end, destroy because you cannot keep the rules you set for yourselves. You can't. Which is why Jesus' invitation to us here is, is so freeing. Because he says, listen, you can't keep the rules. It's okay, I did. So let's, go. let's keep coming. Keep, don't give up on me. My grace will not be exhausted with you. You will not keep the rules, but I kept them for you. And secondly, hey, I'm gonna, one day you are going to keep. All the, one day you are going to be perfect. Like, my, like your heavenly father is perfect. I know that road, and I'm telling you to come with me on that road. Right? It fills us with grace and should fill us with hope. The gospel that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf on the cross so that you and I could know his grace doesn't run out and our hope should never run out. That's why Christian John Bunyan wrote a poem in the, the mid-1500s, uh, mid mid 1600s. He wrote this about the law and how the gospel changes the way you and I relate to the rules, the laws. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Right? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, Jesus might as well tell me to fly, right? Hey, don't let your anger dominate you. Never hold other human beings in contempt. Never lust. Always use the truth as your guide, right? Never retaliate. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. I mean, Jesus may as well tell me to go to the edge of a cliff, jump off, and fly, because I'm not going to do that. That what I need is not... More rules. I don't need Jesus to come and offer me a better teaching or better instruction. That's not what Jesus is offering you in this sermon. He's not offering you a new list of rules. He's offering, him, offering you himself. The gospel, the good news, that will make you perfect in the end. We will fly. Because far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray.